Gospel of John chapter 8, verse 31, and we're going to read from verse 31 down to 38. I'm just going to read out loud, so I'd like you guys to kind of follow along. Um, I'll just kind of give you a real quick upfront, like we're going to read through the entire thing. Uh, we are really only going to focus on two specific verses today because the rest of the verses are going to dovetail into next week, which kind of encompasses this larger, lengthier segment of Jesus addressing uh, these uh, religious leaders that are trying to figure out, should we follow Jesus? Should we trust Jesus? What does belief in Jesus really look like? Today, we're just going to focus on two specific verses, 31 and 32. It'll all make sense when you read it. So let's go ahead and read, um, and then I will pray, and then we'll get to work. Verse 31, chapter 8, Gospel of John. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not remain in the house forever, but a son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham. As if to say, duh, of course, no doubt. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for uh, this time. We pray that your word would have impact upon our hearts, upon our souls. Um, so we entrust this morning in your hands. Bring transformation, bring change that only you alone can bring. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't y'all grab a seat? So as I mentioned, next week we'll take a look at uh, the broader topic of what is enslavement to sin. Jesus kind of leaves that on sort of, or we read, finished up, and left Jesus in kind of mid-sentence or mid-train of thought, which we will pick up the remainder of that train of thought next week. He finishes with that little statement, uh, I do what my father tells me to do. And you guys do what your father tells you to do. And the question, obviously, that should be on everyone's mind who is their father? You'll find out next week, so don't miss it. Um, and you need to, it's important to make sure that you do not miss next week because it might be, whoever their father is, might be some of your fathers too, which is like, should be shocking. Little lope, uh, lump in the throat, shocking. That's the level that Jesus is serious about what he wants to bring home with regard to the larger topic that is at hand here. What I want to focus on today is just the little phrase in verses uh, 31 and 32. I'll read it again just so it's fresh in our mind, and then I want to leave us with a question, and we'll delve into this. Um, verse 31 again says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. So in the larger context here, Jesus is referring to, he's talking to a group of uh, people that were interested in Jesus. Uh, John, the writer of this particular book, tells us that whoever these people were, they believed in Jesus, which is kind of fascinating because what we find out a little bit later, their belief in Jesus was not a belief that led to life transformation, that led to full life devotion to Jesus. In other words, it was kind of a belief that what we would more associate with Westerners today, like we have a cognitive awareness of somebody or something, but that cognitive awareness doesn't transform your life doesn't change you. You don't become a radical follower or disciple of somebody in this particular context. So he's going to be referring to these people. And then he goes on to say, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
The phrase that I really want to think about today in our time together is the idea, truly my disciples, or true discipleship. What really is meant by Jesus with regard to true discipleship? And let me put it in another context, or maybe a question. Are you a disciple of Jesus? I'm going to put it in another context. Every one of us in this room, I don't care who you are, how you think, how you live your life, every one of us are a disciple of somebody, which then raises the question, what is a disciple? And then maybe even further, how do I discern or determine who am I a disciple of or regard to? So let's jump into really kind of looking at three specific things today. Number one, I want to just kind of ask the question and kind of form basically a uh, definition. What is a disciple or what is discipleship? What is a good definition for this? Now, uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, otherwise known now as Crew, uh, they had a great little uh, definition. I'll just kind of read and I'll read you mine. A journey, this is Crew's, a journey of intentional decisions leading to maturity in your relationship with Jesus so that you become like him. I like that. I think that's, that's Articulate, I think it defines, covers all the major bases. This is the way I described it. A deliberate, sorry, right here. Go back. There we go. A deliberate, there he thinks. <laughs> a deliberate apprenticeship with the aim of becoming a living copy of one's master. Again, I'll unpack it just so you can think about it. Uh, number one, it's deliberate. It's, it's not happenstance. It's not by by accident. Nobody accidentally becomes a disciple of Jesus. You become a disciple of Jesus because you make a conscientious decision to say, I will give my life entirely over to this person we call Jesus. A deliberate apprenticeship. So what's an apprenticeship? Um, I like to think of the idea of discipleship just in the terms that we would use today is an apprenticeship. So if you're going to be an apprentice of, of somebody, you would find somebody who's a master in some, something, whether it be the skill of, like, electrical or maybe they're a master, you know, I don't know, potter or whatever it is. What you would do is you would figure out a way to get into a relationship with that particular person and learn from them. Everything that they have uh, crafted in their skill, in their mastership over a particular idea, and you would spend some time with that person, maybe several years. And at the end of that apprenticeship, the big end game is for you to become just like that person, to think about that person. Not necessarily even at that point to innovate, but that's where a disciple of Jesus is. It's somebody that has a deliberate apprentice with the aim of becoming a living copy of their master. There's a phrase that some would identify in early first century that they would have this idea of following in the dust of um, their, their rabbi. So a rabbi was a teacher or a synagogue leader or like Jesus. Uh, he was really neither one of them. He was just a traveling communicator. Um, and Jesus had disciples. A lot of people actually had disciples. But the idea was to follow so closely behind your rabbi, you're literally walking in their dust. Obviously, they didn't have paved roads back then. I mean, technically they did because the Romans actually made incredible paved roads. But the point, not paved, but rock roads, you get the idea. Um, but the following closely behind Jesus or whatever rabbi you're following uh, indicates incredible proximity and indicates this idea of a deliberate apprenticeship. So, with that, Jesus goes on to say, if you abide in me, in, in my words abide in you, he's going to go on to describe it in other places as well, you will truly be my discipleship. So whatever discipleship is, Jesus says it has to do with or it's deeply linked to the, this concept of abiding. What does it mean to abide? Now, that word can be uh, translated as dwell or remain. Again, it's maybe even the idea of intentionally obey. 
That's what abiding means. So Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. Like, discipleship actually has to come as a result of you choosing to abide or choosing to link yourself up with this particular person. And again, I'm not necessarily saying salvation is your choice. Jesus rescues and saves people regardless of what. But discipleship, following Jesus, being a lifelong learner or an apprentice of Jesus does involve you making a choice to live within proximity of Jesus, to follow him, ultimately with the aim of becoming just like him in everything that you do. So discipleship, what we learned so far, uh, does impact and affect the entirety of your life. So next slide. You'll take a look at the way some of this kind of plays out. So abiding in Jesus, or in other words, discipleship to Jesus, will impact at least these two areas, and if not every part of your life. Number one, how one lives. John, the author of this particular book, also wrote three, actually four other books, Book of Revelation, and then three other small books that bear his name, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Uh, in 1 John, he says this, chapter 2, verse 6, whoever says he abides in him uh, will walk in the same way that he walked. So if you claim to have discipleship to Jesus or be linked to Jesus, then your life will then begin to take the shape of Jesus. You will look like Jesus. The idea of walking is synonymous with your lifestyle. If your lifestyle, if you claim, I I follow Jesus, I abide in Jesus, but your lifestyle looks nothing like Jesus, um, then what John's going to gently do throughout this letter is to press back and say, you, you could have a false understanding as to what it means to be following Jesus. In other words, you may be a nominal Christian, meaning you are a follower of Jesus in name only, but you lack the actual real fortitude of it, um, or you are deceived. That's the way John's going to give us some options to choose from. But the point that I'd make is this, is that John links this idea of whoever abides in Jesus will walk the way that Jesus walked. First John chapter 3, verse 6, he'll go on to say this, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Another way of translating that is makes a practice of sinning. Again, every Christian, every follower of Jesus, every non-follower of Jesus, we sin. We are by nature wired to have these GPS systems that just are are broken. They malfunction. And that malfunctioning comes as a result of us making wrong choices, and those wrong choices are what um, leads us to basically miss the mark, and that's exactly what the word sin actually means. It's missing the mark, missing the aim, or the defined purposes that which God had for us to live in human flourishing. And the definition of that is sin. And so what John says, those that follow Jesus or make a lifestyle, a choice of following, becoming an apprentice of Jesus, they will, some have described, you know, it's kind of a nice, cute way to say it, is that you're not going to become sinless, but you will sin less. I think it's kind of a nice, cute way of identifying it. I didn't make it up, so I'm not taking credit for it. But the idea is, is that's, that's what will happen. As you follow Jesus, your life will become more aware of those areas that are out of sync with his plans and purposes. And again, you're not going to be perfect, but what you will do is you will make moments of course correction, of looking at those areas. You'll repent. This is another biblical word, which means to turn away from certain actions or attitudes or if you're you you say something i mean i've I've, you know i've I've raised two daughters so there's been i've done my fair share of like sitting down on the edge of bed after making my daughters cry be like look daddy's really sorry i shouldn't have said it the way i said it and i gotta own that so i'm i'm sorry for how i acted in that particular moment that's not that's not the best version of daddy the best version of daddy is like still yet to come so let's be happy about that but right now right now this version of daddy has to like fess up own the fact that he was not a good daddy and 
deal with that. So point that I make is this. That's what happens with a lifestyle that involves course correction, repentance, and turning to Jesus. In other words, the way John says it, uh, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And then it also affects our love, what we devote ourselves to. Um, John would say this in John chapter 2, verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides, abides, there's a word abide, in the light. The word light obviously is a reference to the moral purity of Jesus. But the point that I think he would make is that as we follow Jesus, it involves transforming, a transformation of what we love. So at some point, we will find ourselves hating things that God hates, but also loving things that God loves. God loves people. God loves human beings. Now, again, if you try to live the life of Jesus or these things that I just described here, like I'm going to not sin anymore, I'm not going to be doing bad things, or I'm going to abide in in a way that walks the same way as Jesus, or I'm going to try the best that I can to be nice to other people, but you detach yourself from radical transformation or devotion to Jesus, you will find yourself in one of two camps. One, you will deceive yourself thinking you're doing a good job, and then you will look at everybody else around you with disdain. By the way, that's called pride. That's the exact opposite of Jesus, so you're already self-defeated. Or you will find yourself in a state of despair because you'll realize, I failed, and I can't do this. And over and over and over again, you will begin to beat yourself up because you cannot do this stuff on your own. It involves a linkage, a direct connection to Jesus. So I want to skip on down to the very next thing. So number one, what is the definition of discipleship? Number two, what is the reward of discipleship? Another word, I, honestly, I, I don't necessarily particularly love that word reward because it kind of this gives this idea that you earned it and you get this reward or you entered the raffle and you get the reward. Um, but it's what I was left with. Or you can think of the word fruit or result, but I'm going to stick with reward. What is the reward of discipleship? Verse 32 goes on to say, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Jesus says, if you abide in me, you will be my disciples. So think of it this way. You got abiding in Jesus. Then this leads to or opens up the possibilities to which Jesus then brings us into a lifestyle whereby we begin to know the truth. And then that truth begins to do something, has a liberating effect upon our souls. Later on down in 1 John chapter 2, I'll read this. You can just make note of this. 1 John chapter 2, verses 24 to 25, he says this. Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. Obviously, the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus. Jesus, And then he goes on to say, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to you. Then he goes on to say, dot, 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 eternal life. The result in all of this, if we were to combine all these things, what John is saying, the reward of following Jesus, the reward of abiding in Christ, is quite literally truth, freedom, and life. Truth, freedom, and life. Let me ask you this question. What value does having truth, being free, and having life have upon you? Is that something you aim for? Do you want truth? Or are you comfortable just living in deception or lies? Again, we live in an age of misinformation. What value does this have upon our soul? And realizing that freedom is an option. I, I think none of us would, would settle for something that involves uh, radical restriction and having no control over any say or whatsoever of our lives. So we, we long for freedom, and I would even add we long for life. All of us are driven by these innate longings inside of us. We see these things as being central to what it means to be human. 
We want life, we want freedom, and we want truth. And these are all things that Jesus says, as you follow me, you will get this. You will arrive at this. I will bring you into this. You'll walk in this. This will be your lot in life. And I was thinking about this, that many of us oftentimes settle for far less. We settle for a world of lies or a world of brokenness. And what Jesus is continually inviting us into is follow me, and I will give you all of these things. Abide in me. Devote yourself to me, and this is what will take place. I was thinking about this, like, in our culture, and at large, this is, again, we as human beings were wired for a need to have life, have truth, and have freedom. All of these things. And I was thinking, what are some of the ways in which our culture basically says, this right here is the path to life, freedom, and truth? In other words, if you have this, this will bring you into the realm of life, freedom, and truth. I was thinking about at least three things. I'm sure there's a menu of lots of other options that we can choose from. But I think these three kind of encapsulate much of what we find ourselves in the middle of in this cultural moment. Um, Number one, I think, is the idea of operating within the fullness of what I would describe and some other authors, philosophers have described as the autonomous self. Or another word, way, more common phrase of just thinking your self-expression. In other words, the idea is true life, true freedom is going to be found when you get out from underneath the yoke or the bondage or the enslavement of your mom or your dad or your grandma's religion or even your spouse in some cases. And you embrace the fullness of who you are inside. Then you'll have freedom. And what we have today is a culture that promises us you will have freedom, you will have life, you will have purpose, you will have meaning in your life if you can live into that. And yet, time and time again, we come back to this fact that that seems to be a bill of goods. And I'm, look, I'm all for learning to you know, discover who you are as a human being, as, a, as an individual. Totally for that. Have no problem whatsoever with that. But the problem is that there is a partial truth in this, but there's also a partial lie that we have to be at least aware of. That if we get what we think we most deeply and desperately long for, will that truly lead us to a path of freedom in life? I, I think of people that have made really bad life decisions based upon this principle. I thought, dot, 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 that I was actually living into my true self. And I made choices, or I spent money, or I had investments on whatever things that were there, part of that world. And then I ended up getting what I thought I had longed for, and then I began to realize what I thought I had longed for actually was not fulfilling. Or it had an expiration date. And once it soured and died and went away, I soured and died and went away with it. So in other words, living into the full, what we would describe as our authentic self, cannot be, cannot be a path to life, freedom, and truth. Uh, Another thing I think that's very popular in our culture today is what I would describe as like endless worth. And, or, sorry, endless wealth, sorry. The idea of, like, if I can just have, like, this everlasting flow of wealth, like, I can go on vacations once a month. I could do whatever I want. I can buy a brand new car. I can live in what we would describe as total freedom. Now, the fact is, is lots of money does give you a lot of freedom. It totally gives you way more freedom. You're no longer under the man. You have ability to kind of set your own hours. There is a radical degree of freedom that's involved in that. But we also know that just because you have uh, an endless amount or supply of wealth or money that's given to you, 
That doesn't mean that you are a wise human being that makes wise choices or decisions with that money, and you can find yourself getting into, guess what? Enslavement. I mean, look, there's been so many crazy studies on this, that people when that win the lottery, they have this mass windfall of, of money and wealth that comes into them, but because they have not been trained to be the type of person that's wise with their money, they find themselves getting in debt, and now they are actually, quite literally, enslaved to creditors or people that have offered them money, and now they're, now they're stuck. So, so wealth cannot be a path to freedom in life because it could end up becoming a path to more enslavement. And the last thing, I think, is sexual expressiveness. It's a massive one. In fact, you know, again, most of us, we don't even know this, but we've been, we're, we're living in the aftermath or the wake or the new world, I would even add, that's been crafted by the 1960s and sexual revolution that basically has crafted a whole new world. Uh, it, it, it promised to liberate specifically women out of this oppressive nature of having to live in a context of marriage where they are endlessly tortured by a spouse and they can't have sex or live in any form of sexual expression that they desire and long for. And now we live in the, this post-world of the sexual liberation, sexual revolution, that now promises you can just do whatever you want. There's, there's nothing off limits. As long as two consenting adults come together or a consenting adult and a consenting child, it's all good is what the promise or the claim is. But the reality is, is, does it keep good on a promise? Or is it another bill of goods? I was reading a book recently by a gal. She's not a Christian. And she has studied extensively the whole sexual revolution. Her whole conclusion was that actually the sexual revolution was, was a failed revolution that has left women more vulnerable and subject to oppression and enslavement than ever before. Because now women, even though they've been promised this bill of sexual liberation and freedom as much as you want, it's a woman, for the most part, that's going to be feeling the weight of guilt, shame, brokenness, flawed relationships. And men, men, men end up on the bad side of this as well, because men tend to objectify women, and they tend to just look at women in an objective sense of like, Nothing more reduced to a body part. And that's, that's, a, that's a fail for us men as well. Because you can't even see a woman for the beauty of who she truly is as, a, as an image bearer of God. Because we are constantly just simply reducing them to nothing more than a bag of flesh. So it's a fail on, on all sides. It promised freedom, but it's actually brought about a new form new forms of enslavement that we never even dreamed of were possible in our world. And here we are today. Here we are today, living in a world that's even playing around with the idea of lowering the age of consent. How did we get here? A promise. A promise that life and freedom is found through sexual expression. And I'd like to suggest to you that all of these things that are radically influencing our culture and our world in which we live in today, all of them fail. All of them fail miserably. And this is why the words of Jesus are so profoundly life-giving and beautiful. Just come to me. Abide in me. Follow me. And as you do, you will know the truth. And that truth will liberate you. And you will be in relationship with the Father who is in relationship with the Son who loves the Son, and you will be swept up into this deeply relational love
connection between the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and you and his church. I think, honestly, all of us are truly honest with ourselves. All of us long to just be loved and accepted. And nothing other than the gospel affords this or gives this to us. And lastly, I'm going to finish with this thought. What's our motivation for discipleship? What moves us into discipleship? What calls us or beckons us? Um, motivation is something we've talked about a lot, but I, I wanted to just bypass a deeper think on this and just kind of focus on what is it that God says by way of an invitation to come follow me. And I was thinking about this, that God's abiding character and unwavering commitment to healing, to the healing of all things, demonstrates this, his reality. Uh, sorry, his reliability, in other words, his trustworthiness. So I want you to focus on the word abiding. The word that God actually says of himself, that God himself actually abides. And if you do like a little word study, that word appears a lot to describe not only an act that we are invited into, abide in me, Jesus said, but it's also a word that describes God's commitment to humanity, God's commitment to this world. God abides in this world. Now, take a look at a couple examples of this. So Isaiah, uh, next slide, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says this, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever, forever. God's word abides. So think about, think about this. In our world where things have expiration dates, in our world where things have and are subject to spoilage, in our world where things rust and die and break away and can be stolen from the back of your car, in our world in which all of this stuff that we hold on to, hoping it's going to give us everything that we long for, but it at some point leaves us, just like everything else leaves us. God says, my word will never fail. My word will never fail. And then he goes on to say, Isaiah chapter 66, verse 22. He says, a new heavens and a new earth I will make, and it will abide forever. God says, my world that I'm creating, crafting, it will one day rescue it will abide forever. And I'd love to even play around with this idea. Who gets to inherit this new world, right? Who gets to inherit this? Is it the rich, the powerful, the elite, the educated? Who gets this new earth that God says, I'm crafting? It's the meek. Those that would follow Jesus and devote themselves to them. These are the ones that he says are going to be the ones that will inherit this earth. Um, and then he goes on to say in Psalm chapter Psalm 136, in fact, I would recommend reading the entire psalm. It's just beautiful. Um, I think it's around like 26 verses in 26 times. It's kind of written in such a way where uh, you would have somebody that would shout out the first phrase, and then the people, the congregation would shout back the second phrase. And the second phrase is something along these lines of his steadfast love endures or abides forever. God's love over all creation, over all things, over all of his work, it will abide forever. So 26, 27 times in that psalm is this constant reminder that God's love will abide forever. So in closing, I want us to think about this idea. Um, it's not until we get to Jesus in the New Testament that we see the fullness of how devoted God is to this broken world. That's suffering under its own bad choices of sinful practices, and discipleship to false entities, and allowing our hearts to be swayed or manipulated or lied to away from the heart and the mind of God. And as a result of that, we've, we've brought this deep brokenness upon our worlds. 
upon the world in which we live in. And what Jesus is inviting us to do is to trust him as we do. And when we see Jesus, we see how devoted God is to the healing of this world. So much so that he actually enters into his own creation. That's the story of Jesus. He takes upon himself flesh and blood, or if you'd like, he writes himself into his own narrative, his own novel. Who's that character? Oh, that's the author. Wait, he's dying. Why is the author dying? Because the author recognizes he's got a trick up his sleeve that death cannot keep him down. He dies, but he rises again. And the whole hope of the gospel is that as we follow Jesus, abide in him. We will enter into, as a reward, all of these other aspects that come as a result of that. Life, truth, freedom. Religious people oftentimes find God merely useful. The distinction, I would say, from a religious person or a person that maybe not even is a Christian, they might find God somewhat useful. But a Christian, a disciple, actually finds God beautiful. There's a difference between usefulness and beauty. And this is what we see God inviting us into. C.S. Lewis would put it this way. In fact, as I read this, I'm going to have Dan come on down. He's going to lead us in a closing song, and I'll have you guys stand up in just a moment. But I want us to just listen to these, this little final phrase or final word or note from C.S. Lewis. I don't have it up on the screen, so just listen to it. If you want, you can close your eyes. That's fine. Or just listen carefully. He says, there must be a true giving up of the self to abide, to abide. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body. In the end, abide with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life in Jesus. He goes on to say, hold nothing back. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Just pause and think about that. Then he goes on to say, live for yourself. Make yourself number one. Eliminate God, keep him in the margins, keep him in a place where he's controllable. That's the only safeguard is one that we can control, but that God cannot rescue you in an ultimate sense. But we always want to maintain that, that posture of I, I still have control over my life, over my stuff. And then he goes on to say, live for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But live for Christ. And you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. Including your life. The very thing that you're aiming to protect. What's the solution Jesus would say? Follow me. Abide in me. And as you abide in me, you will know the truth. The truth will make you free. And you will come to life. Um, let's all stand. And we're going to just sing again. And in this closing song, I want you to just maybe even do a quick audit of your own self, your own life. Where are those areas in your life that Jesus might be saying? So if you are maybe not a Christian here this morning, it's a moment for you to look and say, where are those areas I need to lay down and surrender to him? And if you are a Christian today, this is one of those moments to just pause and be like, oh my gosh, Jesus is so good. And he, and he loves us. He hasn't forsaken me. And if that's the case, just all the more, like, boldly shout out his praises as we sing. So let me pray and let's sing. Jesus, thank you. And we come to you even right now. 
and we lay our lives down before you. And we just want to now boldly proclaim your goodness. Let's sing.